This is Sit Rap on BFBS with Kate Jabbar. NATO leaders head to Chicago this week, but what can we expect for the alliance's future? Former Bosnian Serb Army Commander Ratko Mladic finally faces trial at The Hague, but already there's a delay. How diving off the Florida Keys is helping rehabilitate British servicemen with life-changing injuries and the forgotten battles of Scotland. Why should they be remembered? This weekend, David Cameron heads to Chicago for the NATO Leaders' Summit. Afghanistan and the alliance's future involvement there is top of the agenda. It's the first time the leaders will have convened since their meeting in Lisbon back in 2010, when they decided the Afghan authorities would take over security in 2014. Well, I'm joined as usual by BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee, as well as our reporter James Hurst, who will be heading to Chicago this weekend. Hello to both of you. Uh, First of all, James, uh, who's going to be there? Well, let's start with the host, the big man, Barack Obama, in his home city. And that gives you an idea of the importance of this event. For Britain, it'll be David Cameron, William Hague and Philip Hammond, who are the big three. This is a gathering of national leaders, foreign secretaries and defence secretaries. And while the ministers meet every few months, typically, to discuss things, the, these summits where everybody comes along, including the, the men and women at the top, far less frequent. The last one, as you say, at the end of 2010. So they really are seen as quite important gatherings. And what are they hoping to achieve with regards to Afghanistan? Well, the, the key word, as far as the Secretary General is con- concerned, is commitment, and particularly commitment after the end of combat operations, after the end of 2014, cash is the big one here. Cash to carry on paying for the Afghan security forces who are going to be taking on the job. Now, there will be a, a joint declaration to that commitment. But as to substance, I'm not sure we're going to see pledges of final amounts from different countries. Behind the scenes, though they are going to be talking more uh, than they are in public about what happens between now and 2014, particularly because um, you've got the the new president of France, Francois Hollande, has said he wants to bring French troops out by the end of this year. Now, that is, you know, not welcomed by other NATO countries. Uh, I think there's going to be some talking, you know... looking to see, is anybody else going to do the same thing? And some trying to persuade France to rethink. And what are we going to hear specifically from Britain, do you think? I think, basically, the right noises as far as NATO is concerned. You know, Britain's a core member of this, and I think pretty much a a driver of what NATO wants to see. In terms of any new pledges from Britain, I think, unlikely, they've already committed their share of cash to the Afghan security forces post-2014. They've committed to running an officer training academy. What they're going to be wanting to do is encouraging firm commitments from others. And so what else is on the agenda? This all feeds into NATO's future uh, and the the job NATO does and how it does it post-2014. Smart defence is the buzz phrase you're going to keep hearing. That's about more sharing and less duplication of capabilities in tight times. They will announce, for example, a new fleet of uh, drones for aerial surveillance. The missile shield that we've heard about before, we will be told of an interim capability. It's going to be interesting to see how Russia reacts to that. Um, They will have, we're told, a high-level diplomat there. Cooperation with other countries, the big theme. Pakistan being one of those, they've been invited. And people are wondering, could we see the supply routes into Afghanistan reopened? 
Christopher Lee, we've been talking about this summit on SITREP for, for months now. Do you think it'll change anything? No. Um, I mean, let's go, let's go backwards, right? Uh, the Pakistanis and opening the supply routes. The uh, so, uh, Pakistan government wants to do this. The Pakistan uh, military last night and first thing this morning we're talking about it, they said, no, we're not going to open it. So somebody actually said, well, how do we get people out there if we haven't got the supply routes? I mean, that's the sort of complication. The biggest problem with this whole thing is that uh, is Afghanistan is right at top of the agenda. They want $4.1 billion uh, over a 10-year period. That's what the Americans uh, have decided. They're going to have to put up 66% of that. The Americans sent... You know, you know, people get married, they get a wedding list, and you go to a shop and you can tick them off, you know, you can buy the <laughs> fridge or whatever you're going to buy them, how generous you are. The Americans sent to different countries, Canada, France, United Kingdom, Sweden, this is how much you've got to put in. This has absolutely poked off, especially the European members. Um, they said to, the, to, said to the British, you've got to put in $200 uh, million, and the, and the British said, well, hang on, hang on, we're not going to put it in at all. Or put in 110. You know, you can't do that, said the Americans. The Swedes are putting in 40 millions. The French, they've asked them for 200 millions. Can you imagine the new president going in there? Yeah, sure, you can have that. I've been talking to the continental European uh, people about this. They all say we have low expectations for 2014. Um, they think that Afghanistan is nothing more than a corrupt society with different terrorist groups taking over. They have no hope of getting the sort of dollars that they expect to get, nor the cooperation, and that's why the Americans have got to put in 60, uh, 66% of it. May the 1st, the Afghan-U.S. strategic partnership is the core to the whole thing, and this summit goes no further than that. Well, joining us on the line is the former Foreign Secretary and current Chairman of the Commons Intelligence and Security Committee, Sir Malcolm Rifkin. Thanks for your time today, Sir Malcolm. Not um, sure. Are you expecting any great things from this NATO summit? I wouldn't say great things, no, but I mean, there's a lot of solid issues that have to be discussed and hopefully agreement reached. When you're dealing with such a large alliance, that's not easy. NATO has expanded so dramatically since the end of the Cold War with all the Central and Eastern European countries joining. And that's a good sign. If countries want to join an alliance, they think it's something worth joining. But it does mean decision-making is that much more complicated. You've heard people talking about finances already. We know times are hard. The US feels other NATO countries should be pulling their weight more. What do you think this could mean for Britain's armed forces? Well, first of all, I think the United States itself recognises that the United Kingdom Uh, and indeed France, uh, are the two countries who do have very serious defence expenditure and uh, do make a major contribution to the role of the alliance. Although there's always nervousness of those defence cuts, those defence cuts in the United States itself. Uh, So they recognise that that's not completely avoidable. But France and the United Kingdom are the two countries that both are serious military countries and uh, have uh, retained their their obligations, particularly the United Kingdom, for many, many years. I think the Americans will take uh, very great interest in what the British Secretary of State for Defence, Philip Hammond, was able to say earlier this week when he said that uh, the government have concluded that they now have Ministry of Defence expenditure under control, that that massive gap between the commitments of the Ministry of Defence and the resources available to them has now been bridged and that he's not anticipating the need for further cuts. That will be very, very heartening. Obviously, like everybody else, we will wait to see that that can be delivered. But the fact that the Secretary of State felt felt himself able to say that 
was uh, something that couldn't have been said for the last few years. So a positive note, and yet you get things like this report from the US-based think tank, the Atlantic Council, accusing Britain of lacking a coherent strategic vision as far as its foreign and international policy is concerned. What's your view on that? Well, I think you can say that about almost any country. I mean, it depends what they mean by a coherent vision. The whole issue, the whole point about your defence capability is that you always have to have a capability that takes account of the fact that the unexpected will happen. If you think of most of the major wars of the last uh, 20, 30 years, uh, whether it was Saddam Hussein invading Kuwait, whether it was the Argentinians in the Falkland Islands, uh, or a number of other examples of that uh, kind, uh, you, and this has been true throughout history, wars can sometimes happen in a way that were not anticipated, and therefore a country like the United Kingdom uh, has to have a defence capability that can react quickly in that uh, situation. I think the UK does pretty good. And, you know, for a country of 65 million, which is it's a relatively small population in a world that measures population in billions, the fact that we are the fourth or fifth largest country in the world as regards our defence expenditure and capability... That still said something. And yet, looking ahead to the future, do you think Britain should, indeed could, be prepared and willing to get involved in an overseas military campaign on the scale of Afghanistan? First point is that we assume, and it's written into all British assumptions, that any commitment of that kind uh, in the future, uh, as it has been in the recent past, will be as part of an alliance. The possibility of the United Kingdom, as it were, unilaterally and by itself entering into such commitments is virtually non-existent. But even as part of an alliance? Well, that depends on the nature of the threat. I mean, you have some circumstances uh, where, for example, when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait in the early night, the first Gulf War, not the Iraq War, the first Gulf War was widely seen throughout the world, including in the Security Council, as a threat to global security. And a response was needed, and it would have been inconceivable if the United Kingdom did not take part. If, on the other hand, you have uh, conflicts or crises breaking out in various parts of the world uh, where the question of British involvement is more optional, where we don't have to be involved, it's a question as to whether there is some particular contribution we can make. Well, that's a more difficult case to argue at a time of austerity, and you would really it would be up to the government of the day to satisfy Parliament and the public opinion uh, that that really was in the British uh, interest. I mean, that, the Iraq War is the obvious example of a war that many, including myself, uh, would argue was not indeed necessary and where a lot of credibility was lost by forcing the pace on that issue. In, in what state would you judge the coalition, uh, coalition of the willing at the moment, or is it just a coalition of who can afford it? You mean within NATO? Yes. Well, I think we have to recognise that NATO has two roles. You have the, what is called the Article 5 situation, which is the collective security, where we pledge to go to the defence of any other member state in NATO who might be attacked. That's fundamental, and all countries must be willing to make a full contribution to that. I've taken the view that since NATO started operating, as it has done in the last 20 years, out of area, in Afghanistan and other parts of the world, uh, these are very important missions. Uh, I personally have supported most of them. Uh, but clearly, if, you, if NATO is becoming involved usually helping the United Nations Security Council on missions that don't go to the heart of protecting its own territory, then it's inevitable that some countries will feel more able than others to take part in these missions. So I think it is unrealistic to believe that NATO can be uh, a body where all member states make the, uh, the full contribution to every single commitment that NATO chooses to enter into. That should only apply where we're dealing with the actual an actual threat to the territorial integrity or security of a member state. And just looking at the uh, financial crisis within Europe at the moment, we hear every day about the situation in Greece. How concerned are you that this crisis facing Europe would lead to a new and very different kind of security problem right on our doorstep? 
Well, it is a crisis because, you know, defense is an, expend, is an expensive uh, capability. Um, you know, Frederick the Great once said that diplomacy without arms is like music without instruments. So if you want to have a significant military capability to back up your diplomatic efforts in resolving the world's problems, you have to have military capability, but that is expensive. And the more that you have countries in deficit, the more that there is an economic crisis in the Eurozone, the less likely that Europe, which already pays very little towards defense capability, certainly continental Europe, uh, not the United Kingdom, as I said earlier, not France, to be fair, and one or two smaller countries. Um, but the more that you have an economic crisis, the less easy it is to argue that defense should be exempted uh, from the austerity that goes with that. So Malcolm Rifkin, stay with us. Sit rep with Kate Still to come, how diving off the Florida Keys is helping rehabilitate British servicemen with life-changing injuries. And the forgotten battles of Scotland. Why should they be remembered? PFBS Sit Rep. It's taken more than 15 years to get the Bosnian Serb army commander Ratko Mladic to The Hague, but now his trial has been delayed further. Mladic is facing 11 charges of war crimes and crimes against humanity arising from the Bosnian conflict, all of which he denies. Well, now the judge has suspended the trial due to the late submission of some prosecution evidence. The halt has come on the second day of his trial, which focused on the Srebrenica massacre of 1995. Earlier I spoke to former commander of British forces in Bosnia, Colonel Bob Stewart, and asked him what his hopes were for the trial. Well, it would be nice if it achieved some form of justice, but that is impossible because you cannot right what is wrong, and so many people have died as a result of the actions of General Mladic, but at least General Mladic will never come out of prison again. You say as the result of his actions. Obviously, that's for the trial to decide, but is there any doubt in your mind as to his responsibility? Not in the slightest. He was the military commander of the Bosnian Serb army from the time when I was there right up to the end of the war. He was the military commander who commanded the attack by Bosnian Serb armed forces against Sarajevo for 44 months. He was the military commander that surrounded Srebrenica and Garazda and bombed it unmercifully. And he was the military commander who allowed, or at the very least allowed, but certainly possibly ordered, the removal of men and boys from Srebrenica and their murder. How have the massacres that were perpetrated haunted you over the past 20 years? Well, the ones I saw, of course, have, have haunted me. Um, it's quite difficult to forget picking up the skull of a baby, thinking it's a, a ball, and then dropping it. You feel terrible guilt and it's pretty awful to think back and say well we were near when these massacres occurred but we didn't know they were happening and we didn't do very much about them so of course we feel we we that were there feel pretty guilty in some ways we can say well we saved quite a lot of lives too but one life lost when it might not have been it is a disaster do you think that this trial, and indeed the conviction of the former Liberian warlord Charles Taylor, signifies a change in international justice that sooner or later crimes against humanity will be investigated and the suspects will be tracked down? Well, I should think probably less than 1% of people that have carried out crimes against humanity will be brought to justice. So, you know, 
I've been to Bosnia recently and I'm quite conscious that there are a huge number of people wandering around that country who have got serious blood on their hands and that they will never be brought to, to trial and they will never face justice. And I think that's sad, but it's better to take one person, one in a hundred, than no one at all. Recent events in Syria, we've seen so much coverage by people just on the ground with their iPhones. Do you think the iPhone generation can play any great part in preventing these kind of atrocities by alerting the eyes of the world to them sooner? I think it's a very good idea, and um, m maybe that's exactly what happened. After all, what happened in, in the Balkans, the, the wrongs that were happening there were, were, well, shall we say, highlighted to the world by uh, newspaper reports and particularly by television reports in the early 90s. Without such reports, the West would not have acted as fast as it did. But my goodness, even that speed was the speed of a striking slug. That was Colonel Bob Stewart there. Well, Sir Malcolm Rickon is still with us, as is Christopher Lee, our BFBS defence analyst. Uh, Sir Malcolm, um, you were defence secretary at the time of the Bosnian War. Are you surprised by how long it's taken to get Mladic to face trial? Well, it's only taken that long because uh, he, his whereabouts were unknown for many years and clearly there were almost certainly people in Serbia or in Republika Srpska in Bosnia who were hiding him. So the trial had to await his capture. It's good that he's now facing justice. Although delayed, of course. Um, Christopher, do you think with the advent of the iPhone and the internet that something like this massacre at Srebrenica will never happen again? No, I wish, it were, wish that were the case. I mean, one of the tragedies of any warfare, and it doesn't matter whether it's, it's modern warfare or older warfare, is that quite often people understand what is possible, but there's a reluctance to tell people as well. I'll give you one example. When the introduction of satellite intelligence gathering, and that's near-Earth observation stuff, there was a group in NATO that was formed. I'm not sure it wasn't when Sir Malcolm was, was at the Defence Ministry. And it including and including some outsiders, the Swedes. And they said, if we see something which violates an arms control treaty, we ought to raise it. And the Swedes said, no, 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 wait a minute, we'll take this to the United Nations. Maybe we do not want to raise matters which we can't do anything about or may become so controversial. Now, that sounds totally stupid or but irresponsible. But it actually happened. Well, Sir Markham, would you concur with that from your experience? Well, I don't know of specific examples of that happening, but I can't rule it out. Uh, it's certainly undesirable that it should happen. I think if, uh, if there is evidence of atrocities taking place or serious violation of human rights, that should always be reported. And going back to your earlier comments about iPhones and so forth, I think that represents a fantastic new development. Because clearly, in the, if you have uh, the equivalent of a Srebrenica, there would be hundreds of people in that location who had mobile phones that could take photographs, could record what was happening, and some of them would be able to get that information out in a way that was not possible but the at the time of Srebrenica. But, Samukhan, the terms of reference, for example, for a small United Nations so-called peacekeeping force may not allow them to interfere, which that was a character of the Balkans. I mean, well, it, 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 can I just comment on that? Because it wasn't so much just the... Te you're right, it was not partly the terms of reference. Um, but there was another problem as well. Srebrenica was part of the safe havens policy. And when the United Nations was asked to report on should there be a safe havens policy, they said yes, but only if we are provided by member states with enough troops and with enough military capability so that they actually can physically protect. And the problem in Srebrenica was that the Dutch, who, who were very brave and who were trying to do their best, 
uh, they did not have in support the manpower and the military capability that could have made a difference. So whatever their terms of reference might have been, unless you've got the people on the ground and the, the weapons, you can't do the job. And that's what uh, we've, we've got to be careful that we don't declare safe havens again uh, unless we are willing to provide the means of ensuring that they actually are safe havens. Christopher, in recent history in Syria, do, do you think the iPhone made any difference to the way the international community reacted? Uh, it did, but it didn't make any difference to the way that they did something about it, if you like. I think it's very important, this social media now, because we have reached, I think we've discussed before, we've reached a point when, and Chicago happening at the moment is very important for this, uh, 28 NATO nations plus 12 other non-NATO nations in, in Afghanistan, for example. But we've reached a point, let's say, over Syria, where we understand that big nations, it may be now that we can't do anything about things like Syria, apart from perhaps facilitating arms, uh, arms supplies to the, uh, the opposition. That is a, a very, very piece of cold comfort. All right, Christopher, stay with us. So Mark and Rifkin, thanks very much for your time. Thank today. you very much. Goodbye. This is BFBS. Sit rep. Servicemen with life-changing injuries from operational duty are benefiting from a pioneering new form of rehabilitation based on the principles of diving. It's called depth therapy, and those who've taken part believe the freedom of movement in the water helps both the body and the mind. BFBS reporter Fiona Weir joined six British soldiers and US Marines in a windy Florida to see the programme in action. Taking to the water for the first time are double amputees, Troopers Chris Middleton and Richard Ward, both injured by separate IED blasts in Afghanistan. As they enter the pool, they are aided by their disabled diving instructor, Richard Cullen, one of a team of carefully selected British and American volunteers. It's just fantastic to take these guys in the water and actually see them develop, and from when they're first thinking the first day that this is going to be absolutely, you know, really hard work and they're not going to be able to do it, see them today swimming underwater looking at the fish looking at the coral depth therapy was created by fraser bathgate a pioneer of disabled diving paralyzed in a climbing accident he believes that the sport freed him of his depression it's the only adventure sport that if you're in a wheelchair you can buy off the peg and because you're leaving the wheelchair behind you've got this incredible ability to move underwater which you don't have on land and we find that that tends to be a, a starting point for freeing up the mind but also part of it is talking with other service personnel. Sometimes it's harder to do when you're in a, a clinical environment so by being able to do it like we're doing here, just relaxing the guys talking, we tend to find that they open up a lot more, they, they offload stuff and like they, they, they leave a different person. Being in the water allows the injured soldiers a freedom of movement they are no longer capable of on dry land. A feeling ex-RMP Carlos Buckley hasn't experienced since he was confined to a wheelchair after being shot in Afghanistan in 2008. It's liberating. You are in another world. I just drift away in my uh, mind. It's like being a child, you're definitely free. And you're out there just like you in the ocean and really good experience. Initially, the programme was limited to the US Marines Wounded Warrior Regiment from the Walter Reed National Military Medical Centre at Bethesda, where Sergeant Eric Wheeling is the outpatient section leader. We talk about the mind, body and the spirit and you have to basically kind of heal all aspects of that. So, you know, the, the body is really taken care of more medically, but then we set, you know, body goals such as going diving. If, if it was just easy, 
you know, everybody would go out and go scuba diving, you know, whereas this is still, you know, a challenge, and it's certainly a challenge for them. I, I think they find it rather exciting. So for, you know, that aspect, for the mental aspect, I think that it's greatly rewarding, but I think a huge part of it is honestly just getting the British and the Americans together. Then two years ago, George Cross recipient and Royal Marine Reservist Matt Croucher came on board, and British troops were offered the chance to take part alongside the US Marines, adding a new dimension to the project. Everyone benefits in, in their own way. Um, it really helps post-traumatic stress and brain injuries. I mean, we've got amputees over and it, always, it helps their rehabilitation. If anything, a lot of the British guys and the American guys like talking to each other about their own experiences because they don't necessarily like speaking with each other back home and same for the Americans. It's going to be heartbreaking to leave. It really is. It's been great. It's a total integration. Uh, it's like they're long-lost friends. I think that's probably the best part of the trip is being able to hang out with the other guys. Depth Therapy has opened a new chapter in the lives of these disabled servicemen. That was Fiona Weir reporting on Depth Therapy. Academics are hoping to revive and preserve the memory of Scotland's forgotten battlefields. Historic Scotland has made a list of sites which are at risk of dropping out of the history books with a view to adding the most important ones to an inventory. Dr Tony Pollard is an archaeologist carrying out the research and he joins me now from Glasgow University. Good to speak to you today, Dr Pollard. Why, why are you doing this? What's so important about these battlefields? Well, I think for some time now we've recognised that historic battlefields such as Bannockburn and Culloden represent a really important facet of our um, shared cultural heritage. And for too long they've really been ignored and we're in grave danger of losing a lot of them to modern development. So this, this initiative with Historic Scotland, which has been ongoing now for about six years, um, is to try and highlight the importance of some of these sites and to, to a degree try and preserve them. And what, what's your concern? Why do you think they're in danger, some of these battles, of being forgotten? It's, 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 a double, it's a double whammy, really. On the one hand, some of them have been written out of history, and especially the, the most recent bunch that we've considered and put on the inventory. These are the lesser-known sites, perhaps. And on the other, no matter how well-known the battle might be, everybody's heard of Bannockburn, but the problem is that over the last century or so, much of the field of Bannockburn has been lost to development due to housing estates, schools, train lines, roads, etc. Now, we can't preserve the landscape in aspic, but I think what we have recognised is the importance of trying to preserve some elements of the terrain from which we can learn lessons about our past. So which battles are we talking about then? This time around, we're looking at, well, we already have a list of 24, which include the better-known sites. Everybody will have heard, as I've said, of Bannockburn, Culloden. But this time we've added a further 11, which include sites like the First Battle of Dunbar from 1296, uh, the Battle of Dunkeld from 1689. And these are sites which are perhaps less known, but we feel that they really give an, an added dimension to, to an idea of the complexity of Scottish and indeed British history. So we think they're just as important in their own way as the better known sites. So, so actually constitutes a battle worth remembering then? Well, I, I, we have a number of criteria that they they have to have had some impact on our history, and there are there are numerous battles which haven't really, small skirmishes and uh, such like, but many of them have had really important figures involved. Um, they've changed Scottish history. For for instance, the Battle of Sockyburn in 1488 was part of a little-known civil war within Scotland, but it saw the death in its immediate aftermath of King James III. But what is unusual is perhaps that his son, James IV, was fighting against him. 
Hmm. Christopher, what to you is an important battle to remember? Well, the first thing I think is sometimes we, we list battles and in fact there are not much more than big skirmishes. But there are, you see. So what, 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 Tony what do you Pollard have to is do? Absolutely, well, Tony Pollard's right. There's certain things. For example, uh, I've always associated um, you, Dr Pollard, with Jacobite archaeology uh, almost. And I'm thinking Culloden, yeah? Yes. Uh, very important because that was it. That was the last battle of the rebellion. And so that seems to me extraordinarily important. So you have to say to people, listen, these are things that are worth uh, uh, keeping and worth observing because, A, there's something to see, so we rely on you with your shovels to sort of find that bit. But the other is something exciting. And Langside, you know, Mary Queen of Scots, that's more or less finished her, wasn't it? Yes, indeed. Um, and then I have to tell you, I've got an interest here, Melrose. Mm-hmm. Um, my family all brought up Melrose. Eh? I was in. I was on the battlefield two weekends ago. Oh. Uh, very important because up until that point, when somebody was going through it, the only real battle in Melrose was in the back bar of the Burt's Hotel <laughs> during the uh, d- during the Melrose Sevens. But it was a, it, it, what was interesting about it. Of course, where is Robert Bruce's heart? Yeah, Melrose indeed. in, in the, the Abbey, Abbey. and yeah. that's how you connect up. I think you've got to have something to say, haven't you? Okay. Yes. Sorry, go on, Tony. Sorry, yeah, I, I think, to my mind, I'm involved heavily in education. Uh, I work with schools and I'm, I'm also based at Glasgow University. And to my mind, there's, there's no better way of teaching young people about their history than walking them across one of these battlefields. And the problem is, if it's covered with a housing estate or an or a industrial estate, it's very difficult to get that excitement across. All right, on that note, we must leave it. Dr Tony Pollard, thank you very much for your time today. Uh, just before we go, here's one we dug up ourselves from history. Hello and welcome to SITREP, a new weekly programme that looks at the world of defence, from the hardware to the politics. I'm Peter Hobday, and today SITREP considers the main issues in defence in 1983 and what they'll mean for 1984. That was the first ever SITREP, which has been reporting defence and international news for 29 years now. But the good news is this week is about us, because um, there's been a silent guest during this programme, sitting on the table just here... It's our Sony Award, which was presented to us this week. As uh, a 20-year veteran of this programme, I'm going to ask Christopher to read for the first time, from a script, what the judges said. This this is what the judges said. You can't rely on judges anyway. (laughs) It said, can I quote, supremely well-targeted at his audience, but equally enjoyable and entertaining for the... Who writes this stuff? Who are not in that target group. The judges were especially... Sounds like an MOD handout. Especially (laughs) impressed by how the reporters were not cowered, in other words, under the table, by military hierarchy, true, holding them to account, true, direct and penetrating manner. Absolutely. Thing to remember about SITREP. The core audience, the soldiers, sailors and airmen, can't hear this sort of programme anywhere else. Another 20 years coming up. And our thanks to our audience. And there it was, Christopher reading from a script, and that's why he doesn't very often. Thanks for listening. We'll be back this time next week. Bye-bye for now. Mm-hmm.